thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 15th of May. Welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. And me, Helen Scales. This week we cast our nets to catch the latest science of aquaculture or fish farming. We'll find out why we need fish farms as well as exploring some of the ways to reduce their environmental impact. And in this week's science news, tailor-made proteins that bind to flu viruses, how a laser technique has shed new light on a common process that leads to cancer, and the world's largest gathering of the world's largest fish. So if you have any questions for us, then do get in touch now. You can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and Helen Scales, and we'll begin with a look at some of this week's top science news stories. Researchers in Seattle and Washington have solved an enormous jigsaw puzzle to design two novel proteins that bind to a protein found in influenza viruses. And this proves that computer-designed proteins are feasible and could form the basis of new drugs and new biosensors. They report the work in the journal Science this week. Protein-protein interactions are a common biochemical process. They're important in a great many biological systems, and they're controlled by the molecular structure. For two proteins to bind together, they need complementary shapes that fit together a bit like a lock and key, with no overlap and very little empty space. Saral Fleischmann at the University of Washington, along with colleagues in California, has used cutting-edge software and over 100,000 hours of powerful parallel computing time to design new proteins that would bind to the tail of a common virus protein called haemagglutinin, and they in particular looked at the 1918 H1N1 flu strain. Now, this protein itself helps the viruses to invade cells, and it's found in many, many strains of influenza. Most natural antibodies that help us to fight it off bind to the head region of the protein. But the head is very variable, which leaves room for the virus to evolve immunity. The tail, however, is highly conserved across different strains, which makes it an excellent target for attack. To design the protein, they first identified hot spots of interaction on the virus protein itself. Now, these areas where hydrogen bonding or electrostatic interactions will allow for low-energy bonding of complementary structures, so these structures will essentially just fall together. Now, using a map of these hotspots, they set about putting together the jigsaw pieces and designing a structure that would complement and therefore bind to the hotspots of the protein. 
Candidate proteins were then tested using a highly efficient yeast-based assay, and two of the designed proteins, called HB36 and HB80, were shown to bind well with the 1918 H1N1, as well as other strains of H1N1 and H5N1. One of the proteins, HB80, actually inhibited an important protein change which is used to get into our cells. And that's really important in infection, so that's a good sign that not only does it bind, but it also actually changes the way the protein works. Now, this is by no means perfect, and there's many, many hurdles to cross before designed novel proteins will become useful medications, not least the fact that putting a new protein into, say, our body is going to get an immune response. But this is an excellent example of successful computer-aided protein design, and this is a technique that could be instrumental in future diagnostics and in future treatment. Certainly sounds very exciting. And uh, yes, the, the bringing together of computers and proteins, brilliant. We'll see what happens there. Well, I'm going to go from microscopic proteins to an awesome story about the biggest fish um, in the oceans with the news that scientists in Mexico have discovered that the largest mass gathering of whale sharks in the world is to be found right there in Mexico. Well, these gentle giants can grow up to 12 metres or 40 feet in length. And that means that spotting just one of them as they cruise through the oceans is an unforgettable experience. And yes, I can vouch for that. They are wonderful creatures to swim with. So imagine what it must be like to spot a gang of more than 400 whale sharks. Well, that's what a team of researchers from Mexico and the US did back in the summer of 2006. And they spotted a huge aggregation site, which they've called Afuera, from a plane. They were flying off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in the Caribbean Sea. And since then, they've been back each year to carry out studies from the air and in the water to try and figure out what's going on. And in 2006, they spotted the largest aggregation of whale sharks that's ever been seen, of 420 sharks in an area covering just 12 square kilometres. It just sounds unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, really wonderful. Do have a look at the paper, actually. This is a, it's in the journal PLOS One, and it's an open access paper. You can have a look. And there's photographs of these whale sharks from the air, and they look like ants. It's amazing. There's sort of a swarm of ants. There's just so many of them. Um, but the big question is... Why do they do it? What are the, what are the whale sharks up to? What's, what's the big deal? Well, when any um, animals group together like this in, in huge groups, there's only really two possible explanations, sex or food. And in the case of whale sharks at Afuera and elsewhere, actually, where smaller aggregations have been seen, it turns out to be the latter. It's about food. Um, and I've seen whale sharks in Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia, and they gather there because the coral reefs undergo a mass spawning. All the corals spawn at once, uh, and that sort of triggers this great big explosion in the food web, which the whale sharks and, and, and partake in. And that's actually what's happening here in Mexico as well. Um, the team went out and sieved the sea for plankton and found it was awash with fish eggs. And then they used a fantastic technique, DNA barcoding, to figure out what kind of fish these were. And it turned out to be a type of tuna called the little tunny. And they're packed full of fats. It makes it fantastic whale shark food. Um, and it's thought that the reason the tuna show up in this particular spot off Mexico is because there's an upwelling along the coast which injects a pulse of nutrients into the ecosystem. So it's all, all really wonderful, lots of stuff going on there. And there's already another smaller whale shark aggregation close to this Afuero one, this new one, that's been known about for a couple of years. And that's just been recently protected by the Mexican government. 
And since it already draws flocks and flocks of tourists who quite understandably want to come and swim with whale sharks, you know, it's a wonderful thing to see. But but there are concerns with this new site that there could be problems of interactions between tourists and, and maybe boats and whale sharks. So the researchers of this paper are calling for swift action to protect these wonderful animals in this great big extraordinary natural event. So hopefully there'll still be lots there for generations to come. Thank you, Helen. Also in the news this week, a laser technique has exposed the previously unknown molecular shape of epidermal growth factor receptors, or EGFRs, which are known to be involved in the development of cancer. These are found on the surface of the vast majority of human cells, as Dr Marissa Martin-Fernandez, a scientist based at the STFC's Central Laser Facility in Harwell, explained. The role of the receptor is to bind molecules which are in the bloodstream and produce signals which are transduced to the inside of each cell and to give instructions to the cell machinery to grow, divide, die, differentiate. So it's kind of at the core of how to promote cell behavior. These are the orchestrators. These, this type of receptors orchestrate cells are going to do within a multicellular body and uh, there is a lot that it is known about what happens in this signaling process that leads to cellular growth and when it goes wrong it leads to the growth of tumors. In fact most human tumors have a fault in the signaling of the receptor. Current drugs that target EGFRs do so non-discriminately, blocking activation to halt cell growth. However, in doing so, they may block other essential cell maintenance, and this could lead to the body adopting other chemical pathways to achieve the same goal. This sidesteps the cancer treatment and allows the tumour to grow once more. To find out more about the precise interactions between EGFRs and signalling molecules, we need a good understanding of their structure. To do so, Marissa's team use a novel laser technique called fluorescence resonance energy transfer. So what we do is we put a label in a position in the receptor that we can control, which is it's a molecule that emits fluorescence, and we put another label on the cell surface, and then we excite one of the molecule in the in the receptor, depending on how close it is to the surface. The characteristics of the fluorescence emission are different. And from that information, we can actually get nanometer distances. Knowing the distances between the receptor and the other parts of the cell can help to simulate exactly what structure the receptor will take in situ. This job is taken on by experts such as Dr Martin Wynne at the STFC's Computational Science and Engineering Department at the Darsbury Laboratory. Our starting point are atomic structures that you get from crystallography. These are experiments that would take place on diamond light source, for example, uh, and they give you very detailed atomic structures of the, of the proteins that are involved. The drawback of that is that they're static. They don't move around like they do in real life. Also, that it means that the, the proteins have been taken out of the cell, taken out of their natural context, and put into a, a crystal. So you have very detailed information, but it's not necessarily relevant to what's happening in the cell. So what we would do in a simulation is to take that detailed structure, set up a simulation which mimics the cell environment, 
uh, and then see what happens when it's put into the cellular context. When Marissa's laser data was combined in a simulation with the known atomic structure of EGFRs, the resulting shape was new, unexpected, but surprisingly similar to a structure found in Drosophila, the fruit fly. So what you often see from crystallography is very symmetric structures. The crystal environment is a very symmetric environment and everything's nice and and well-ordered. What we saw when we did our simulation, the molecule actually becomes asymmetric. When we first had, uh, did this, this was something that had not been seen before and slightly heretic. People love symmetry. Symmetry is beautiful. So our simulations were showing that the molecule became asymmetric uh, in order to explain Marissa's experiments. And then the, the amazing thing is that when we look at the molecular shape, it looked nearly identical to the molecular shape of the drosophila receptor. And then when we, we identified that shape, it was virtually identical. It was so similar. It was actually uncanny. We were kind of amazed, you know, when we look at the structure that, was, that we identify and it looked like the drosophila receptor, we knew we were onto something. So knowing this particular structure could help lead to better therapeutics and the technique itself could help move forward into personalised medicine. Given this new information, whether we could actually consider new antibody therapeutics that could block one or the other version of the receptor and allow the other signals to be transduced. So in a way it will be less invasive therapeutics that might actually reduce side effects and make sure that, for example, the body doesn't, is not deprived of a fundamental function that this receptor covers. I mean, I think we're, and we're at the very, we're, we're at the level of very basic science and it's a long road towards drug development, that's true. But I think one of the things that they want to do is to develop treatments that are specific to patients. So you can analyze the DNA from particular patients to see if they have particular mutations. It might be that you can also analyze the the tumors of patients to see what the confirmation of the receptors are. And then that might shed light on whether a particular antibody treatment is likely to work or not. That's their interest is actually in applying this to patient-specific treatments. That was Martin Wynn from the Darsbury Lab and Marissa Martin-Fernandez from the Central Laser Facility in Harwell. You can find that paper in the journal Molecular and Cellular Biology. Now, stem cells may be rejected by the animals that they first came from, according to research published in the journal Nature this week. This could be a huge stumbling block in the use of induced stem cells for therapy. Induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPSCs, are created by taking normal cells from an animal and then exposing them to factors that could allow them to differentiate into any of the body's cells, much like normal embryonic stem cells do. As they are genetically identical to the animal they've been taken from, it's always been assumed that they would not cause an immune response and would therefore avoid rejection. But now Tongbai Chow and colleagues at the University of California, San Diego, have tested that assumption and found that, at least for two of the methods of inducing pluripotency, it simply doesn't hold true. 
The team took mouse fibroblasts, these are cells that make up the structural components of skin, and they used two different techniques to turn them into iPSCs before transplanting them into genetically identical mice. They did the same thing with embryonic stem cells for comparison. The results were quite startling. The embryonic stem cells were mostly able to grow and divide within the mice, but the induced stem cells triggered an immune attack, and so they grew to far smaller sizes, and they showed damage typical of immune rejection. Induced cells transplanted into immune-deficient mice were able to grow and divide in exactly the same way as the embryonic cells, so that shows it's definitely an immune response that's leading to the rejection. Genetic comparisons showed certain genes were overexpressed in the induced compared to embryonic stem cells, and subsequent testing showed that this is most likely to be responsible for inducing what's called a T-cell-mediated immune response. Now, this is something of a stumbling block for induced stem cell therapies, and it shows that we need to ensure that cells created in this way are not just genetically identical to embryonic stem cells, but we also need to account for what are known as epigenetic factors, such as gene expression. Right, so it's not really the end of stem cell therapies. No, no, not at all. It's something that we need to think about quite carefully. One of the reasons why we're using... IPSCs, these induced adult cells, is that it gets around any of the ethical considerations of using embryonic cells. But this clearly shows that that process of inducing this pluripotency is something that we need to pay quite a bit more attention to. And it clearly may have an effect on getting these sorts of therapies into actual treatments. Absolutely. Well, if you like to read up on anything we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. Wading into a river and digging until you get to the slime, soil, dirt and other matter at the bottom may not be everyone's idea of a great day out, but in the right hands, a core of river sediment can become an eye-opening time machine into the past. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to Nottingham to meet senior geochemist Chris Vane from the British Geological Survey. There, at its environmental handling facility, Chris delved into a large freezer to reveal the secrets of river sediment cores. We keep the cores frozen so that they preserve really well. So let's open this up. It says Thames Pollution on the lid, big chest freezer. And you can see there's over 57 sediment cores in here, each of about one metre in length, and then they're sealed at both ends. Can I pick one up? Absolutely, yeah. So you stood on the banks of the Thames and drilled this sediment out? Yes, we simply use a hand-coring device and push through the sediment... So it's a metre long. How far back does it go? We're probably going back here to before the start of the Industrial Revolution. So around about 1750, let's say, would be at the base of this core. And then even before the Industrial Revolution, there'll be a large number of um, chemical fossils associated with um, agriculture and things like that. A record of of humanity on the Thames? A record of humanity on the Thames and how society and urbanisation of London has changed through time. I'll let you put that down because it's very cold. (laughs) And let's go back to the lab and, and see what you do with this data. And this is the Organic Geochemistry Laboratory, which is a white lab full of 
white boxes and these are the analytical equipment with tubes and dials and buttons yeah. there's even what looks like an, an oven over there why an oven it's um very important for us to know the weight of the dry sediment so it's useful to ha- simply have a drying oven just to drive off the water so that we have a, a standard weight of sample before we put it into this sophisticated instrumentation And from this, you can tell what chemicals are in those tubes of of sediment. Go down those sediment tubes and take slices of that sediment. And then what we do is we analyse that on this instrumentation. And from that, we can look at different chemical relics of the past. For example, we can look at chemicals from major use of coals called PAHs. We can look at chemicals from hydraulic systems and industrialization called PCBs, polychlorinated biphenols. Small eras, really, eras of humanity and that that human's influence on the environment. That's right. What we're talking about here is basically dating something called the Anthropocene. It's this notion of basically the current period we're living in, in which man has altered it. And then that alteration is preserved in the sediment. And I suppose within that you've got the Industrial Revolution, you've got coal, you've got more recently nuclear. You can see those. That's right. We've got the coal age with elevated pHs. We've got the fuel age, major use of vehicles. We can tell that from total petroleum, hydrocarbons and lead isotopes. Then we've got markers of the nuclear age through radionuclides. And then these markers of the electrical age through PCBs and other compounds such as flame retardants. Many of these compounds are resistant to biodegradation and so they're preserved in the sediment record. This idea of the Anthropocene is interesting in itself, but can you use this information about pollution within these sediments? Is it relevant to the future? Yes, it's very relevant to helping us manage our estuaries and rivers better because although many of the pollutants are preserved maybe a metre or so down in depth, these river and estuarine systems are liable to changes, sedimentation changes, and they can actually be remobilised and moved to the surface where they can impact both upon the ecology of the estuary and river but also upon humans. So although it seems like it's something which may have been deposited maybe in the 1930s, it's still relevant to us now because it can still impact us. So you look at highly toxic chemicals like PCBs, which were around in, what, the 1950s, 1960s? They're locked in the sediment at the moment, but disturb that and they're released again into the environment. Absolutely. So we need to understand basically where they are, where they are in time, and also the process via which they could be remobilised and affect humans. Chris Vane talking to Richard Hollingham about the fascinating insights gained from sediment cores from the River Thames. And you can find out more Planet Earth resources online at thenakerscientist.com forward slash planet earth. And still to come, we'll hear about the pros and cons of aquaculture, as well as a neat way to reuse the waste from on-land fish farms. So do keep your questions coming in. Tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, that's at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook, or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com.
If you've been shopping for a fish supper lately, then you've almost certainly been offered both farmed and wild fish. Fish farms are found all over the world and can be a really good way of reducing reliance on wild stock. But there are also some very real environmental concerns. To find out more about aquaculture in all of its forms, we're joined by Dr Kenny Black from the Scottish Association for Marine Science. Kenny, thank you ever so much for joining us. Can we first of all just very broadly, we've been saying fish farming and meaning it in in a really general catch-all way. What does it really include? Uh, Hello, yes. Fish farming is a kind of catch-all, as you say, for aquaculture, which is essentially the culture of any species, plant, animal, uh, invertebrate, vertebrates, in an aquatic environment. Essentially, in the sea, we've got everything from seaweeds, a whole variety of species cultured seaweeds, uh, used for a whole uh, range of purposes, uh, through invertebrates, things like sea urchins, mussels, bivalves, right up to the higher trophic level, carnivorous fish. So it really is a broad range of things that we're farming here, and it doesn't all have to be at sea, it doesn't all have to be in real rivers. Quite a lot of it is also happening on land in in huge tanks. Yeah, there's a lot of tank stuff. Not, Not so much tank stuff if you look at it in the very big picture. I mean, a lot of the actual big numbers, as as for most things, are dominated by the Far East. Uh, China particularly has a 2,000-year uh, uh, history, at least that long, of culturing carps and ponds. And that's still probably the, the biggest single f- uh, agriculture animal species culture. There's uh, a variety of different carp species in, in, in China. So how does this compare to wild fisheries? But thinking in particular of food, how much of our fish food is supplied by aquaculture rather than just wild catching? Well, the, the trouble with aquaculture is it's, incre- it's increasing at approximately 7% across the board per annum compared with wild fisheries, which are, if anything, stagnant, possibly in some, certainly in some sectors, declining. So it's, it's, it's difficult to know the absolute up-to-date figures because one of these is, is, is increasing very rapidly. But I've got some figures from back in 2004. It seems like a long time ago, but it's actually the data are quite hard to collate on an up-to-date basis because the data take a long time to collect. But at that time, in terms of freshwater and marine animals, there was about 46 million tonnes grown in culture systems compared with about 96 million tonnes uh, extracted from the sea in traditional fisheries. So about, about uh, roughly speaking, 50% at that time. But uh, at 7% growth rate, it doesn't take very long. And people are suspecting that in terms of just animal production, uh, you might find that we get more from aquaculture than we do from fisheries, which represents an uh, incredible paradigm shift in the way that we use water. Instead of hunting and gathering, we will be using it for culture. That has never happened before in history. Are there certain species that we're seeing a very large proportion of and then others that are, are still really a minority? I, it, I, I get the impression there's an awful lot of farmed salmon and that's just from walking through a supermarket. Farm salmon's a really big deal. Uh, it's, it's not the biggest product. Um, as I said before, carp's probably the biggest product, but uh, we don't eat so much carp here. So what, what we can grow very well in the, in the northern temperate areas of the world are Atlantic salmon, a very easy fish to grow in many respects. It's a large egg, it's very easy to culture, and uh, traditionally seen as a luxury food. So there's a, a ready perceptive market there. So you will find salmon is... is, uh, is rapidly increasing in its overall annual production with a few minor blips, particularly the collapse of the Chilean industry a few years ago, or near collapse, I should say. I mentioned earlier that there are some 
environmental concerns with regards to this. So if if we can sort of break that up into a bit, people are concerned about the way that farmed fish may interact with wild fish, be it genetically or, or with regards to things like parasites. What are the, the big hot-button problems there? Right, I think these are two of the key areas. If we're going to get, look at salmon particularly, um, some of these things don't apply to other species, but for salmon, which is important to the UK, particularly Scotland, these are a, a very contentious uh, issues. Taking sea lice first, uh, there is evidence to show that uh, sea lice from the farm fish interact with wild fish and, of course, vice versa, um, and that wild fish probably suffer as a consequence of that uh, in terms of population numbers. It's usually quite hard to disentangle specific cause and effect, for for example, for like a declining salmon population, because there's probably lots of interacting things. For example, climate change is a big driver probably of, of, uh, of salmon population numbers. Um, for sea trout, which are more coastal species, probably the sea lice issue is a more important one. So a lot of effort is going on at the moment to try to reduce lice numbers on farms and manage farms in such ways that they're, they're the limit the interaction but I think we're quite a long way from cracking that one myself. If you have a, a concentration of fish does that also affect the the sort of the local food web in that normally there wouldn't be so many fish here they wouldn't be adding as many nutrients back into the water they wouldn't be eating as much of the food that's there can it have that sort of environmental impact as well? Well, they don't eat any natural food that's there, or very little natural food. Uh, they almost entirely eat what they've, uh, what they've been fed. So the, the outputs, therefore, are dissolved nutrients from excreted and wasted feed and particulate matter, fecal matter. So you'll have, you'll have a potential for an impact in terms of increasing the amount of nutrient from in the seawater, which might, might be thought to lead to increased produ- primary production, and, and you will see profound effects on the seabed. Uh, just going back to the, the nutrient one, though, in terms of the, the overall budgets, if you look at nutrient runoff from agriculture, um, that by massively outweighs uh, nutrient contribution from aquaculture. So although there's a potential for some effect, uh, at the moment the levels of farming don't really realistically uh, make that very likely. And also for enclosed systems, there are government guidelines about which have been calculated to try to reduce the possibility that fish farming will contribute to any change in the phytoplankton, for example, community. On the seabed, though, the the story is different. Uh, We know a really large amount now about the effects that fish farming has on the seabed, the changes to the benthic communities there, and the profound biogeochemical changes you get from uh, essentially dumping a huge amount of organic matter onto a very small patch of seabed. I think that I think that just to, just to finish that point though, um, and I could talk all day about the profound changes because that's one of the things I'm interested in. It is a limited amount of seabed. It's generally restricted to a very small area around around the farms, and it doesn't spread a huge distance. Well, we've touched on um, the fact that we have to give these fish something to eat. One of the big reasons we think that farm fish is good is because it means we don't have to catch them from the wild. But isn't it true that actually we are going out and catching fish to feed to the farmed fish and, and therefore you know, the problem is still there? Well, absolutely right. In the past, I think that everybody, particularly the feed, feed companies and the farmers, they've recognised this now and uh, there's a tremendous drive uh, underway to substitute both fish meal protein and fish oil in salmon diets. Salmon are eaten, uh, one, of, one of the great advertising advertisings for healthy eating with salmon is the omega-3 fatty acids, which have a huge range of uh, human health benefits. And they are delivered to the fish in terms of the fish oil. 
we are now substituting a large amount of fish oil. Um, it, it varies by country uh, and also by company. But we're, we're substituting a lot of that from plant-derived materials. And then using the fish oil, the more expensive uh, and more healthy, if you like, fish oil, to top up the fish at the end of the, the, the growing cycle so that their fatty acid profile still gives us the, the health benefits. Similarly for protein. Uh, protein is pretty much protein, and substituting protein from terrestrial plant meals, if you like, is a big deal at the moment. And I think we can look forward to a time where a very small proportion of the the diet is actually fisheries-derived, particularly if you end up going... I mean, fish oil is the big deal, but I suspect in the future we will crack, and there's quite a lot of signs of it, a GM plant which will produce essentially fish oil with many of the same benefits, which you could either eat directly or you could feed to fish. Obviously, the GM issue is quite a sensitive one in Europe, but I think my own belief in this particular one is that that will be one that we will see perhaps in a decade or two. But there's a huge resistance from both consumer and producer at the moment to anything that has the words GM on it. I believe the omega-3 fatty acids themselves actually come from algae. So rather than it being something that the fish itself produces, if we could actually find a way of farming the algae, then we would be able to have this this apparently very healthy oil without actually needing the fish at all. Absolutely. And there's a lot of work going on in growing algae generally. I mean, at the the moment, macroalgae are the biggest single class of organisms that are are cultured. Uh, China produces, I think it's something like 14 million tonnes per year of of cultured macroalgae. They have farms that you can see from space. However, these algae are not particularly rich in fatty acid. You get the fatty acid from microalgae. They are now being grown in large amounts, huge amounts of money being poured into culturing microalgae, particularly as sources of biofuel. You will see the diesel that we put in our cars. I think on most petrol pumps it's something like 8% is, comes from a plant source, usually terrestrial oil seeds derived. But there's a huge, huge potential for using microalgae. Now, these microalgae can also be harvested for their, for their oil for other purposes. And, and, and you're right to say that you could then use them as components of animal feeds. So actually doing this would also help reduce our reliance on rainforest and so on that are being cut down for things like palm oil and other oil-producing plants that that may feed into biofuels. The key thing with aquaculture is it will never really mature in its, and, and become a really big contributor until it separates itself from the terrestrial system entirely. The terrestrial food production system has big problems over the next 30, 40 years in terms of feeding the world's growing population. Uh, these problems are to do with land area, to do with uh, nutrients and fertilizer, very highly energy intensive, and to, of course to do with fresh water supply. So if you can, if you can make aquaculture essentially close its production cycle and grow its food in the sea, then you you obviate a large amount of these problems. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. That is Dr. Kenny Black from the Scottish Association of Marine Science. We will come back to him later in the show with some of your questions. So if you do have any questions, get them in now. Tweet at Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientists.com or write on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. Well, as we've heard, aquaculture isn't restricted to the oceans. Many aquatic organisms can actually be farmed on land. This is potentially good news for reducing the environmental impacts of aquaculture because all the byproducts can be contained, including large amounts of solid waste and enriched salty water. 
But how do you dispose of a whole lot of fish poo without harming the environment? Dr Kevin Main heads up the Centre for Aquatic Research and Development at the Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida, where they've come up with a novel new way to reuse this waste as fertiliser for farmed marine plants. You can't just grow anything in solid waste out of a saltwater system. If you put it on regular plants for vegetables or something like that, everything's going to die. And so I entered into a um, partnership with a company that does restoration of wetland Mm -hmm. plants. And their business is to grow a whole suite of species that are used to restore coastal environments Mm -hmm. in the southeastern U.S. And so they'll go in and replant areas that have been impacted, say, by development or storms or hurricanes or oil spills or things like that. And so they grow all these plants in fresh water and fertilize them and and grow them there. And then when they get their contracts to go and plant them back in a coastal environment, they'll expose them to salty conditions for a period of time. So they'll acclimate them back to the conditions so that when they put them out there, they're not completely shocked and they die. Kevin took me out to the greenhouse where they season the plants prior to replanting. These plants are absorbing the nutrients that are produced by the fish and turning it into plant material. And these plants have the potential to be used for restoration projects throughout the Gulf of Mexico. It's a, it's a three different species that are found commonly along our coastline in Florida and up through the uh, rest of the Gulf. And every single one of them will eventually go out to restoration projects around the state. And you say that they are being fed basically with fish poop, is that right? Yes, that is right. Uh, What's happening is that we're getting a combination of both the solid waste, or we'll call it fertilizer, and that's coming from the fish production unit, and they're getting high-nutrient water that is associated with that waste. And that huge greenhouse contains more than 100,000 plants, but it only uses the waste from a relatively small number of fish. What amazes me about it is that I have less than 3,000 fish in the production unit there because we had some fish that were left over from an earlier research project that we were working on. And we put them out there and we said, well, we'll just get started. You know, it probably won't be enough nutrients for them. But at least we'll have something going in there, and hopefully the plants won't die. And so we put them in there, and we started sending the wastewater through there. And sure enough, it was plenty. So now I'm thinking that we might need, if we have this really stocked well, we might need like three greenhouses instead of one because you're going to produce a lot of plant biomass. And although it's clearly working well, this technique is still experimental. So to work out how best to deliver the fertiliser and enriched water, Kevin and the moat researchers are doing a number of controlled trials. Because this is a research study, I have two raceways with Mm -hmm. plants in them and I'm using two different approaches to entering the solids into the plants systems. One of them, all the solid is actually removed prior to the water coming through and then only high nutrient water is coming through. This one, it has solids and water going right into Mm -hmm. that system. The great thing about that is this is a simpler system to build and operate. But the advantage to the other one is that you can pull the solids right off that system. And then what we do is when they're going to start a new crop of plants, they come in 
scrape off that solid material, take it back there and mix it with the potting soil. So it's essentially like adding fertilizer. And then the third treatment is a bag. It's called a geotube bag that just collects solids inside the bag. And to find out more about where the fertilizer comes from, Kevin took me down to the ponds to meet the fish. Florida pompano, which is a really exciting fish. People come here from all around the country, both to fish for it and to eat it in our local restaurants. So it's tasty? Yes, it is. It's a really nice, delicate white fish. And uh, the idea is that you're producing them here in this sustainable system, and eventually these will be sold. That's exactly right. Both the plants and the fish will be sold at the end of the project and go into the market. And how long do we keep them here in these these great big tanks in front of us? We've got these enormous round tanks. I'd say they're about three, four feet deep. Is that right? Um, They are actually five feet deep, and the uh, fish will stay in that system probably for about 9 to 12 months before they are market size. So about a year old and then they're ready mm-hmm. to eat. So that's, that's, right. that's not too bad. Mm-hmm. No, it isn't, especially when you compare it to some of the other, say, big marine species, grouper or fish like that, when you're harvesting them out of the ocean, they could be 20 years old before you're harvesting them. And you can release these guys back into the wild as well? Well, you could. That is not a target for this particular okay. project. And uh, the state of Florida is not currently targeting pompano for stock enhancement. It's not to say that you couldn't because the genetics of these are based on populations that are from this local coastline, so they certainly could be used for that. Finally, if the waste keeps us in plants, where do the fish themselves come from? Persuading broodstock fish to spawn in captivity involves mimicking the natural environment and giving them a little hormonal helping hand. We first start with environmental cues. We use lighting temperature and moon cycle lights to condition them for the spawning conditions that we know that they normally react to in nature. And then right when they're just about ready to spawn, we will inject them with a hormone that causes them to, their brain to say, okay, now's the time. Because we really haven't got all the cues right in place. And so in order to get everything just right, At least up to this point, we've had to use a hormone implant. It works very effectively. We implant one day, 24 hours later, they'll spawn. 24 hours after that, the eggs hatch. Thus ensuring the next generation of fish will continue to provide fertiliser for more plants. That was Dr Kevin Main, head of the Centre for Aquatic Research and Development at Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida. But now it's time to join Dave Ansell and Mira Synthalingam. For this week's Naked Engineering, Dave and I are looking into the field of biomimicry. So this is the mimicking of biological organisms for their structures or their movements. And this week, Dave, we're looking into fish. Yeah, for nearly 200 years, engineers have been optimising one way of moving through water, essentially using a propeller. So you have a spinning propeller which pushes water backwards and you get pushed forwards. Now, nature uses an entirely different system and has spent tens of millions of years optimising this, which instead of using a rotating propeller, you use a flapping tail. And this has got a load of different advantages and disadvantages. Well, one scientist looking into this and designing robotic fish is Professor Ho-Seng Hu at the University of Essex. Now, Ho-Seng, how do fish actually move through water? One kind of fish movement is generated by the tail and the half of the body. They try to bend the body and the tail in an S-shape to generate the force and move forward. So this is moving side to side, and as the tail moves to the left, it's sort of bent to the right, so the water is kind of 
falls off the edge and gets pushed backwards. Then as it comes back the other way, it generates lift in the other direction. And it, overall, it gets pushed forwards. We call this body tail motion. Well, so you first got into this area to make robotic versions of exotic fish. So how did you even set about an initial design then for this? It's very challenging to make a robot like a real fish. We cannot have similar muscle like fish has. And so what we have in hand is on the motors. So we have one of your earlier designs here in front of us. It's a fish about half a metre in length. It's very aesthetic, so it's the shape of a fish. You've got fins on, you've got a nice beautiful tail, blue and silver scales attached onto it as well. We actually have reached the head, which inside we put the computers, we put the sensors inside, also we put the battery inside. And then we had a flexible link, three or four joints with three or four motors concavely linked together to form the body and the tail section. So this can be driven by the electric power to bend in the body like a real fish. But I guess it's more than just simply getting this fish to move through the water. It needs to kind of know and direct itself through the water. So just coming out of the mouth here... I can see sensors sticking out and there must be other sensors within or to help it actually know perhaps when an obstacle is coming up or if it's about to yeah, bump into something. We have uh, four infrared sensors try to detect obstacle on the way. So with this is navigation sensors. On the other hand, we had a gyroscope inside, we had a pressure sensor inside. It's trying to control the motion of the fish. So initially you've created this very aesthetic fish here, but there are uses for this in environmental monitoring and the monitoring of water pollution, which is what your next generation of fish have been designed for. What we're trying to do is use a team of the robotic fish in the seaport to detect the pollution. So we're moving out of aquarium tanks, water tanks, out into the sea now. There must be many more challenges and many other factors to consider. Once the fish move into the sea, we have to put enough power for the fish against waves, currents. And also we have to put a lot of sensors inside to actually find a way to go. And I guess navigation is going to be really important and the traditional way of navigating these days is using GPS. As soon as you go underwater, it's going to block the microwave signals which carry the GPS. Mm. How do you navigate in this kind of environment? We actually use the same principle like a satellite, but instead we use the solar beacon embedded into the seaports. Sonar beacon propagate sonar signals. We know each of the beacon positions. And each robotic fish has the sonar receiver during the triangulation. So basically you're putting a load of transmitters. Your fish can listen to several different transmitters and work out the time difference between them. And so from that it can work out exactly where it is in three-dimensional space, but only inside the port. Yes, exactly. We call this a structured environment. You've actually changed a lot of the original structure as well. So the material, for example, it's just purely made of, of carbon fibre. It has the stru- shape and structure of a fish, but there are no aesthetics here. It's purely about handling the sea and moving through it. The fish has to be agile, robust. So we try to make the body rigid. And also looking at the tail, instead of the previous version, which had four joints, this seems to be much, much simpler. We actually, first stage, we try to simplify the driving mechanism from the four joints 
reduced to the two joints. Once this is successful, we're looking for more joints to gain more flexibility. This is the engineering compromise. What actually are the benefits of using this, these fish-like structures in order to monitor pollution? What makes them better, say, than propellers? There are two benefits. Firstly, fish-like movements is low disturbance to the water environment. Secondly, robotic fish can peacefully swimming in the port, no cause any danger to the real fish. If the fish isn't actually producing an awful lot of turbulence behind it, does that mean that in theory it could be more efficient than a conventional propeller? In theory, yes, because the submarines and the ships generated a lot of turbulence to the environment and the waves. The efficiency is not very high, actually. But real fish, they are very, very efficient swimmer. We are trying to establish how much energy saving by body movements compared with the thrust rotation movements. That's our next goal. Professor Hu Seng Hu from the Computer Science Department at the University of Essex showing Mira and Dave his new generation of robotic fish. And you can actually see that mechanical marine marvel in action in our Naked Engineering video. That's online at thenakedscientists.com slash engineering. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and with Helen Scales. We just have a few minutes left and we're joined by Dr Kenny Black from the Scottish Association for Marine Science. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, We've had a few excellent questions in. Uh, Let's start with this one from Titus Theresa. Helen, you may also have an opinion on this. We've been asked, are farmed fish any less tasty or any less nutritious than wild-caught fish? Kenny, what do you think? Well, if we talk about salmon, I think taste is, is, is a, a probably a, too subjective a thing for me to talk about. Nutritious, um, I think probably in terms of crude nutrients, there's probably not much difference. Maybe farmers are a bit fattier perhaps, but then maybe the fat's good for you. I think the interesting thing for human health, though, is, that, is the whole story about contaminants. We heard earlier about the contaminated sediments. Unfortunately, the marine environment is contaminated with all of these plus things like mercury, and they just work their way up the food chain. So they've, these have got into all the fishery products that we eat, and also they get into things like fish oil. The good thing about fish farming is that you can clean them out. You can actually take the oil and strip out these, these chemicals. So you could argue that a farm fish has the potential to be much, have much lower contaminant burden than a wild fish. We've also had a question from Alan Scott on Facebook. He wants to know if farmed fish are more disease-prone and if that increases the likelihood of problems. He said a la chickens and salmonella. We chatted briefly about um, a parasite burden earlier, but what about sort of infections and that sort of thing? They are disease-prone. I mean, salmon are pretty robust fish, um, and most of the other cultured fish that we have are are cultured because they're, they're not too susceptible to diseases. Nonetheless, diseases occur. Anywhere you culture a very large number of organisms in close proximity, uh, you increase the chances that a disease will become an epidemic within that population. So it's all about population size, ultimately. So the bigger the number of fish, the more, more risk there is of a disease. Um, at Jackson Sage on Twitter asked this, and I think we sort of hinted at this earlier. He said that aquacultured species are, fi- are fed on fish meal from wild stock, but is there a more 
more sustainable way to feed them, such as using tofu as a source of protein. Is this something we're moving towards? It is indeed. It's, it's something that's happening already. You, you'll find that, particularly not, not in the UK as much as in other countries, but some of the countries are really using very little fish meal, f- protein from fish, in their fish f- feeds. Uh, still using a bit of fish oil, particularly for finishing off fish, as I mentioned earlier on. But we are looking at a, 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 it's the future for diets which contain very, very little uh, fish product. And one of the reasons for that will also be pushed by the fact that more and more people are looking at, instead of grinding up little fish and turning them into fish meal or or pig meal or all the rest, because there's lots of other things, each uh, fish meal, uh, we feed it to lots of different animals. But instead of doing that, we actually eat these fish directly and and cut the corner, if you like. That's a much more efficient thing to do. Munya Olchawi asked, what would happen if a farmed salmon with a modified promoter growth hormone gene made it into the wild? Is, is this a likely situation? Well, if we do have them grown in open cages, if, I mean, and this, 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 these, these fish have been developed, not, not, not in, the, in, the, in Europe, but uh, they have been developed, they do exist. If they did escape, there's, unless we did something about it, which I'll talk about in a minute, there'd be no real reason to, to suppose that they'd be any more benign than any other escape fish. Now, escape fish generally are bad news because they interbreed with, uh, with wild populations to their detriment. If you've got a particular gene in there, it may have all sorts of consequences. People have talked about ecological and genetic consequences. One of the things you could do if you really wanted to do this, which I don't think is a good idea anyway, uh, there's no need to do it, but if you really wanted to do it, you could put in a suicide gene. You could put in a gene whereby the animal has some dietary obligatory requirement so that when it went into the wild, it wouldn't have that and it would die. That's Dr Kenny Black from the Scottish Association for Marine Science. Thank you ever so much for joining us. But now making a very big splash is Diana with our question of the week. This week, we've been having a whale of a time listening to music. This is Rob from Utah in the United States. I recently took a trip to SeaWorld in San Diego, California. I really enjoyed the trip and the many animal shows. But as I was sitting and watching the whale show, it occurred to me that the music they were playing for was really loud. As water is more dense, it should be a better conductor of sound. If this is the case, are those poor whales being deafened by the repeated exposure to all this loud music destined to never again enjoy whale song? So how loud is too loud underwater? This is Mariana Melcon from Scripps Institution of Oceanography of the University of California in San Diego. As far as I know, it hasn't been studied whether whales are bothered by loud music in SeaWorld, and It's true, actually, that the sound propagates better in the water than in the air. However, when the airport sounds reaches the water, lots of energy is lost. This means that the loud music would not be as loud in the water as it is in the air. Since whales spend much more time underwater than performing aerial displays, I wouldn't expect them to be as bothered as humans could be. I guess, though that people hitting the glass walls and shouting could be somewhat disturbing. Now, their own sounds could also be affecting them, because toothed whales produce high-intensity sounds that are reflected from objects and return as echoes. So the animals analyze these echoes to, for instance, find their prey. Now, imagine can loud it can be for them emitting these sounds which can be approximately as loud as ships reflecting in the surrounding walls. So, summarizing, animals may be annoyed by the loud music, but in terms of acoustics, I think that there are other factors that could be affecting them more. 
It's likely that the whale's own noises would cause greater problems than that of the music, but there hasn't yet been any conclusive research on the subject. Andrew wrote in to say that, as a sailor in the Royal Australian Navy, he's not allowed to use sonar around whales, and that their frequency hearing range is much lower than ours. Therefore, it's possible they won't hear a lot of the high-frequency music, and much of its energy is lost in the water anyway. Next week, is driving on empty a good thing? Hi, this is Paul from Waldingham, Surrey. I was wondering if there was an optimum level to which you should aim to fill your car's petrol tank. In other words, after what level is the car simply using energy to carry around excess petrol? Or alternatively, do the vehicle manufacturers make the capacity of the petrol tank the perfect size so that the car isn't using energy to simply carry around unnecessary petrol? Thanks for a great show. How much should you fill up by in order to save the most amount of money between garage trips so that you're not carting around excess fuel? Answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can write on the forum which is at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thanks Diana. So how much petrol is too much? Get in touch with your ideas. But that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our guest Kenny Black and to our production team Tom Simpkins, Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthalingam and Dave Ansell. Next week we're going to explore the cause and some treatments of allergies so if the pollen count can keep you indoors or if you need to be careful around nuts join us next week to find out how you can treat food allergies and how parasites keep allergies at bay The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust the EPSRC the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast For more information Look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.